Hello and welcome. I'm Raji Sohal on the Sunday Show podcast today. Gas prices are high and they're expected to go even higher. Is it time to think about getting an EV? And Tara Holmes from Stop the Time Change weighs in on daylight saving time. And mask mandates have been largely lifted. Was that the right move for the province to make? Dr. Brian Conway thinks so. Last Thursday, Dr. Bonnie Henry removed some mask mandates, and many of us were taken uh, off guard by that. Well, was it the right call? Joining us is Dr. Brian Conway. He's a medical director and infectious disease specialist at Vancouver Infectious Disease Center. Hi, Brian. Hi, Raji. You are so kind to give us your time on Sunday morning with uh, the time change, too. So, Brian, let's dive right in. Did the province make the right decision to lift mask mandates? Probably. We're switching towards the endemic phase of COVID, and we're going to have to learn to use our masks without being forced to do so. So I think in that context, this is clearly the right decision. Okay, so if there are places where we should still be masking, in your opinion, what would those places be? Indoors, in places where we don't know everyone, and where ventilation is a little bit uh, suspect. So I think the areas that I'm a little bit concerned about is transit, for instance, uh, smaller uh, areas where there's going to be lots of people, smaller restaurants and so on, where personal distancing is not going to be possible, and anywhere where a particular individual doesn't feel comfortable. Just because you don't have to wear a mask doesn't mean that you won't do it. So it's going to be an individual decision in that regard. Okay, so transit, uh, one of your recommendations there, smaller areas. What, what would you mean by that? Well, I think that if you, want, if you go into some small stores where there really isn't much room to move around, and especially if you notice that the staff are wearing masks, I think that should be a cue to wear a mask while you are inside. Uh, people will be coming in and out. We won't be able to trace them uh, if, uh, if a transmission occurs. Uh, people will not necessarily be fully vaccinated in the area of Omicron. That means three shots. Uh, half population doesn't have their three shots. Those are the kind of considerations that go through my mind. Okay. And what about visits with uh, elderly people we know in our families and whatnot? Well, I think this is where the rapid tests are going to come into play a little bit. They're being distributed widely. Uh, older British Columbians uh, are at risk of the serious consequences of COVID. We certainly don't want them to be infected. Of course, only go if you are vaccinated. And just to add that extra layer of safety, doing that rapid test that could produce a red light if it is positive, meaning you don't go in at that point and you, you behave as if you are infected. Uh, I think that uh, that's sort of the way I'd approach it. Okay. Brian, we know that uh, we have a pretty fairly high vaccination rate in BC. So help us understand at this point, as we move towards endemic, how effective is masking? Masking is that extra layer of safety that reduces transmission. It protects others and it also protects ourselves from being infected. I think we need to, to congratulate ourselves on how well we've done with vaccination but about 50% of people have yet to receive their third shot. In the era of Omicron, which accounts for 99.5% of the cases that we're seeing, um, 
we need three shots. So I think that uh, we need to progress with the vaccine. We need to not forget that it's important to be vaccinated, even though we're in endemic COVID and it isn't top of mind all the time. Uh, but the mask is that extra layer of safety. Okay, that's very interesting, Brian. So you still want to see, even though we are moving out of masks now, you still want to see people go for that booster shot? Absolutely. And I think we're going to be talking about a fourth shot in the fall after we've had hopefully a very nice summer with low levels of transmission. We're going to think that we're back to, to normal, but it is new normal. It is COVID normal. And if and when public health authorities tell us that we need a fourth shot, we need to go for it with the same enthusiasm that we did with the first two shots. And now, because we're removing all of the regulations, except essentially for the vaccine passport for the next couple of weeks, if you didn't get your third shot and your turn comes up, please go. Okay. Brian, what do you expect with transmission without masking now? Well, there'll be a little uptick. I think um, it's clear that COVID is still around. There are still cases being diagnosed. There are still hospitalizations occurring. And unfortunately, there are still people dying. And if we increase the contacts between individuals, especially without masks, there'll be an increase. Obviously, they've calculated that uh, we will be able to deal with it from a healthcare system uh, point of view. But if people are expecting COVID to just continue to, to go away right now, I think that isn't what's going to happen. Okay, so are we expected just at this point to be in management phase? Well, I think we go back to the principles of public health. It is possible that there will be localized outbreaks to which we will have to respond. And there may be mask mandates and other mandates put in locally to deal with, uh, with, these, uh, with these issues. And if that happens, let's not be surprised. It's expected. And let's try to understand why the rules are put in place if you happen to be personally affected and try to follow the rules because that's what's going to happen in endemic COVID. Okay, Brian, we know that uh, COVID transmission is, is tricky because it's airborne, it spreads via aerosol, meaning it lingers, correct? Well, it lingers for a bit of time. Outdoors, it uh, dissipates very quickly. Outdoors has always been a very safe environment, and that's why we won't necessarily need masks outdoors unless we're very crowded together uh, and there's, there's, there's no ventilation. So that's almost no situation outdoors. So outdoors is going to be safe. Indoors is where the issues uh, that you bring up will be very significant. So that's why I come back to small spaces, especially those that are poorly ventilated. Yeah. So that's where COVID is. Okay, you mentioned small spaces that are poorly ventilated. We have not heard about a mandate to keep windows wide open at schools. No announcement about, you know, highly effective filtration systems that were put in place in classrooms. So without masks in those scenarios, what are we missing about this plan? Well, I think that schools have improved their ventilation. Schools have kept windows open, have become good at spreading people out. And I think that that will continue. Fortunately, uh, school-aged children, teenagers, if they become unwell from COVID, they will not be personally affected to any significant uh, extent. The worry about is those that do have weakened immune systems and those who have people who are a bit older or who have weakened immune systems at home. Those individuals will probably have to take some precautions, and I think we'll, we'll hopefully have the uh, ability 
to individualize it in, in that way. Generally safe, there'll be exceptions in the schools, and let's try to deal with them positively. Okay, great. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Brian. Thanks for having me. This morning, we shifted our clocks forward. I hope you didn't sleep in. But is it time for us to finally change the way we look at the time change in the province? Joining us is the co-founder of Stop the Time Change, Tara Holmes. Good morning, Tara. Well, good morning, and thank you so much for having me today. Tara, you follow the legislation on this very closely, I know. You've been advocating for a while. And the latest line from the province, three years after saying it would be finished with this, uh, it's still around. What are, your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, the reason that Mr. Horgan is giving is concerning to me. Because let's be honest, just when he had said we would stop the time change after the survey, COVID hit. And of course, I mean, a global pandemic is very important. And then we went into fires and and floods. And and then Mr. Horgan had his cancer treatment. And now we've got war. So I totally understand there's very urgent um, items to to tend to. But what my concern is, is now that he's saying he wants Washington, Oregon, and California to be on board, I really think this is showing a bit of an excuse and a way for him not to enact the bill that he legislated because of what British Columbians asked for. I think you're on to something there. So why do you think the real reason is? Well, I, I just think that he's a little nervous to show leadership on this one item. And he's, he's shown leadership in other areas. And it was kind of ironic because he went up to the Yukon and actually spoke with the premier, Sandy Silver, uh, before COVID happened. And he said, I just want to assure that, uh, Sandy, you're going to be on board with us when we t- change our time. Will you do it as well? And Sandy Silver pulled a fast one and actually did it right then and there. And so they stopped the time change right when COVID hit and they'd stay on daylight. And the biggest concern I have, and this is what I want someone to ask Mr. Horgan, is why is it that he doesn't mind being one hour different from Alberta and we do business and trade with Alberta. They are our neighbors. He doesn't mind being an hour apart from them, but he's very concerned about being an hour apart from his buddy, Jay Inslee, in Washington State. And I just want to understand what the reason is. Business is done 24-7. We don't need to be on the very same time. And, and also, Mr. Horgan has the ability to do this solely right now, whereas Jay Inslee, it, it would have to get the approval from Congress, and, and it goes further than that, whereas Mr. Horkin can do this now because the bill is in the legislature. Yeah, it's certainly, as you are well aware, a very controversial issue, and uh, some say not very likely that California would change and, and we'd be in sync with them. Do you think that has anything to do with it? You know, I, and it doesn't even matter because business is done 24-7. You know, we, we don't need the, the old business is only 9 to 5. Our local chamber of commerce, the provincial chamber of commerce, uh, the people of B.C. in general have spoken and they want to remain on DST. Uh, Mr. Horgan had said this was the number one issue that he got correspondence on in his office. And um, if you might remember, that survey that went out was the most responded to survey in the history of British Columbia, of course, prior to the COVID survey. So it was even, you know, more engaging than 
even when uh, they were legalizing cannabis. It is the number one issue. And I think the, the, when I look at it, the people of BC have spoken. He did his due diligence. Uh, we've met with all of his... Uh, we, we came down and we met in person with Minister Farnworth, and, and we spoke about this. We've gone and talked to MLAs uh, around jur- other jurisdictions. It just doesn't seem right that now it's all about Washington and Oregon and California. You know, they have tabled bills and they've done polls and they, you know, want to, they have sunshine acts and they want to stay on daylight as well. It's just going to take a little longer, whereas BC can do this. And it seems like we, I kind of laugh because Saskatchewan is probably laughing at us right now that we are still talking about this. They don't touch their clocks. And keep in mind, they're a farming province. There's people out there who might still think this was about farming and it's not. And it's an archaic, outdated uh, tradition that serves no purpose anymore. And another point that I think people might find interesting, they might not know this, but George Bush actually um, made a daylight saving time longer. You know, it used to be sort of six months, six months. Now, our bodies are used to this time now, daylight, until November. That's almost eight months, and we're only on standard for about four months. So why bother going to standard for that four months and wrecking everybody's circadian rhythms and sleep patterns and uh, production at work and unruly students? When you talk to the experts, they say that changing these clocks uh, twice a year does more damage uh, than good. Yes, you're right. Some scientists do say that, but some sleep scientists and medical professionals think the opposite, that it's not great for us, that we should be waking up with light instead of darkness. Yes, like they, they want to stay on standard. They, those experts still think, don't agree that we should be changing clocks. They just say that we should stay on standard. There's a bit of a debate there, but of course the majority of people when asked want to stay on DST. And the reason the sleep scientists, um, and, and believe me, I follow science and I'm you know, all about science, especially the last couple of years, uh, <laughs> but the fact that George Bush could just snap his fingers and extend daylight time uh, just because... That just goes to show you our bodies are used to it now because we are on it already the majority of the year. So we are used to this. And another thing they did, um, a professor did a thesis on this and found all sorts of safety reasons why daylight would be better to stay on. Because let's face it, any parents out there who are getting their kids up before school and making them go play outside to get some daylight? They're not. They're dragging them out of bed. They're saying, eat your breakfast, pack your lunch, we got to go. They get them to school and then darkness hits after school it's the light that they need after school so they can go play soccer and they can get outside and play and they can walk home safely without worrying about the distracted drivers who suddenly get put darkness upon them when it's wet dark roads and there's so many traffic and pedestrian incidents it is nuts so Tara that is compelling for sure but as a mom of two kids I can tell you it's easier to wake them up when there is light outside (laughs) and and I don't mind if it's dark when I pick them up from school because that means they're getting, uh, they're starting to slow down and think about, okay, I'm going to eat dinner, take a bath and go to sleep early is what I want. So is part of this just down to personal lifestyle? Well, see, for me, when we first started this, you might notice on our Facebook page, the little animated clock, yeah. it does not say anything about standard or daylight. It says nothing. It says stop 
the time change. Right. We personally, we don't care where it stops. I don't. I could care less. I get up and go running in the dark mornings. I could care less. What I don't want, and, and let's face it, people adjust to, to changes. They really do. They don't want them in the beginning. Remember when people used to smoke in bars and bars were saying they'd go out of business if they stopped, if they brought in and stopped smoking? Yeah. They, they said they would go out of business. They didn't. They're still in business. So the fact is, people just are a little afraid of change. No matter where this lands, people will get used to it. But I'll tell you what the problem is, is people keep debating standard versus daylight. The debate needs to stop. People just need to say, stop the time change now. Wherever it lands is what we're going to get used to. Now, I've talked to the, um, up in the Yukon, we've talked to people up there, I've talked to a, a, a radio colleague of mine up there um, in the Yukon. They're fine. They love it. And when you talk to people who've done the changes, and you know, there's more countries in the world that don't observe the time change than do. They're laughing at us. They think this is hilarious. Fort St. John did a referendum, you know, in their city, and they said that it's just so much better to not worry about changing clocks. Look at Creston and Cranbrook. They are right beside each other, and they're an hour different. It's crazy. So if they have to go to a doctor specialist, can you imagine yeah. you know, going over to a city right next to you, and it, it's, you don't even know what's going on? But yet it's okay. Mr. Horgan seems to be fine that we're an hour apart from Alberta. But gosh, I don't know what's going on with Jay Inslee and what the plan is there. But my gosh, I think it's just, I, but I think that Mr. Horgan has to remember that there's more of BC than down in Vancouver. There's way more of BC, you know, further north. So I think that he has to keep that in mind when, you know, this idea about Washington State comes in. Okay, Tara, thank you so much for being with us this morning and sharing your perspective. Thank you so much for having me and have a great day. And please be careful on the roads, everyone, Monday, because statistics show that uh, you're just not at your best after getting used to this time change. Okay, you bet. Gas prices are soaring to even higher levels. So everyone wants to know, is it time to buy an electric vehicle? And Matthew Klippenstein is the regional manager for Western Canada at Canadian Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association. He also worked with the nonprofit Plug-in BC doing outreach for the BC government uh, rebate program to put EV chargers in multi-unit buildings, such as apartments and condos. Maybe some of you listening have benefited from that. And he joins me on the line. Good morning, Matthew. Uh, good morning, Raji. Thank you so much for your time this morning. So people are flocking to dealerships with their mm-hmm. questions about EVs. What are they seeing? Um, well, I went to a few dealerships uh, yesterday to prep, and uh, they are probably seeing wait times in the six-month, perhaps, range. Uh, now, this isn't because the automakers are holding back production or anything. Uh, I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that Cars have like 30,000 parts nowadays, and even one disruption, COVID supply chains, you know, what's going on now in Europe. Um, uh, we have wait times. And again, as you're saying, with gas prices going up, there's a surge in demand. It's a wonderful thing. Um, but um, they are probably going to have to do that, uh, you know, count to 10 and hope it's not 10 months. Okay, yeah, six months to 10 months. That's not going to provide any relief for someone who is uh, struggling with these gas prices that we experience now. But mm-hmm. still, people are wondering, like, should I change to EV? That's right. Uh, so, yes, and uh, so I've been tracking the market since about 2013. Um, now, in that year, we had about 3,000 plug-in vehicle sales, all in all, the entire country. Uh, last year, we had almost 75,000, so it's a lot higher, and in BC last year, about 13%, one three percent 
of um, vehicle sales were zero emission vehicles. Uh, and now in, in respect to EVs, uh, there are two flavors, if you will. There are battery electric vehicles, which are purely based around batteries. Uh, there are also plug-in hybrids, which combine a battery, perhaps for your city driving, maybe in some cases up to 67 kilometers, uh, and then have a gas engine in case you're worried about whether there's enough infrastructure on long trips. Uh, there's also a third kind of quirky flavor called hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, but we won't go into those at the moment. Um, in my experience uh, doing this outreach, uh, especially for people in, uh, in apartments, it's about 50-odd percent of people in Metro Vancouver, um, there's a concern about whether you can charge at home and also perhaps whether you can charge, um, whether you can charge on long trips. Uh, in those cases, perhaps a plug-in hybrid might allow someone to run as much as they can on batteries with, with electricity uh, and then still have the gas back up just in case they're worried, you know, am I renting, do I have to move, things like that. It still helps them, uh, even if it's not uh, you know, a full battery electric vehicle. And what about price? People are going, okay, if these uh, EV vehicles or electric vehicles uh, are hovering around $50,000, is that actually worth it for me in terms of how much I'm going to save on gas? Yes. Okay. So on the gas prices, I just crunched some numbers with the $2 a liter gas prices. And if you're going from like the Honda Civic to a RAV4, regular, not a hybrid, uh, to an F-150, you're probably spending somewhere in the range of 15 to $25 per 100 kilometers of driving. That's just for the gas. And with the, with, if you plug in with electricity, even at the higher DC hydro rate of 14 cents per kilowatt hour, um, that's still only about 3 to $4. So you really do save a lot on the operating costs, but you do save a lot on the gas. Admittedly, uh, in many cases still, in most cases perhaps, um, there is an upfront sticker price premium, which um, batteries are getting cheaper. We'll be able to address those uh, in coming years, but uh, we aren't quite there yet. Uh, a couple options are, one, uh, perhaps there's an ability to, you know, if you're able to make larger car payment, knowing that you'll have lower fuel payments, perhaps that might work for some people. Uh, and there are also used electric vehicles. Uh, the first car that we bought was used, certainly um, an old meter. And uh, hopefully, uh, we, the industry hopes to be able to bring everything to every price point for every consumer for all their needs. Because you're not going to get people to move in electric vehicles if they're being forced into choices they can't accommodate in their lifestyle. Okay, you mentioned that there was a supply issue here for various reasons. What about mm-hmm. getting a used EV from the States and mm-hmm. uh, from a cheaper market and, and sending it over? Is that a viable option? That is a viable option, and that is actually a very common path. Um, people in California, there are 10 times as many people in California as in D.C., roughly. And so we are actually a destination market for used electric vehicles. After people come off a three-year lease, they get auctioned off, they get brought up to Canada, and we have uh, many British Columbians happily driving cars that were initially sold elsewhere. You know, they, they buy it used, they don't pay, they don't have to absorb the depreciation costs. Uh, so yes, that is uh, one option that's uh, you know, actively uh, ongoing. That probably comes with its own issues to be aware of. What would uh, potentially be a problem there? Um, on the vehicle side, there's not too much that has to be changed. Uh, one um, wrinkle is that if the battery does need to be replaced, some automakers are reluctant to change a battery if the vehicle is now in Canada as opposed to in the States. Okay, why is um, that, Matthew? 
Um, I think it has to do with basically who bears the cost. Like, is it the Canadian division who bears the cost versus the U.S. division? Uh, the upside is that batteries are lasting longer than ever with, and retaining more of their charge than ever. So hopefully this issue goes away. Okay. And what about getting it serviced for things besides the battery? Is that ever an issue when someone brings an EV over from the States to Canada? Um, I would hope that that isn't an issue because, uh, well, first off, there's less to maintain in a, a plug-in electric vehicle, a battery electric vehicle. Um, and so more of the trivial things, whether it's air filters or things like that, um, shouldn't uh, have a problem. Okay. And Matthew, what about charging stations? Can ours, our, our cities, can our municipalities even handle a surge in the requirement for charging stations? Uh, yeah, that's a very good question. It's a very, uh, uh, very uh, uh, valid concern. And um, the, 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 the frustrating but also fortunate thing is that we have many cars on the roads in BC and Canada, and it will take time to switch over the entire automotive fleet. Uh, there will be some upgrades needed, uh, but it's not like the, the electric vehicle ferry to turn all vehicles electric overnight. We have the time and utilities have the ability to prepare for this so that it, it comes by uh, smoothly and seamlessly. Okay. Thank you so much for this information this morning, Matthew. You're very welcome, Roger. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.